The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, at verse 8. We're continuing our study in this glorious letter centered on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Last week, we began to look at chapter 11, which has often been called the roll call of the faithful, in which the writer repeats the phrase, by faith, many times, listing Old Testament men and women of faith and holding them forth as an example and an encouragement to the original readers and to us as well, that we might continue to stand by faith. And this morning, we consider the example of Abraham, who is presented in the most detail, and various applications are drawn to our lives. Let us give attention to God's word. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. In 410 A.D., 
After a long decline of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome was finally sacked by the barbarian general Alaric. Certain pagan writers blamed the Christians in the empire for offending the pagan gods and bringing this disaster upon them. But the great North African pastor and theologian, Augustine, responded with his now famous book entitled The City of God, which sets forth the biblical teaching that the Christian's great hope is not to be found in any earthly city, but in the city of God in heaven. And no doubt, uh, Augustine got his ideas from that book, from the book of Hebrews and other places in the Bible, such as the final two chapters of the book of Revelation. This morning, we want to see from our text that living by faith in Christ means living as a sojourner, a stranger on this earth, while we wait with perseverance for the city of God, our true home in heaven. We want to see three main points. Coming to faith in Christ means to decisively leave our homeland of sin. And secondly, living by faith means to continue to live as a sojourner in this world. And finally, living by faith means to live in expectation of the final fulfillment of God's promises to us in Christ. First then, coming to Christ by faith calls us to leave our homeland of sin and false worship. Calls us to leave our homeland of sin and false worship. We see in verses eight and nine of our text, the call of Abraham. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. The sense of the beginning of verse eight is that Abraham, by faith, obeyed immediately. You might even translate it, as he was being called by God, he obeyed. Abraham was raised in the city of Ur, a pagan city filled with idolatry. In fact, in Joshua 24, 2, Joshua says to the Israelites, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And then he talks about God calling Abraham. It's no small thing to leave all that is familiar and safe to leave your homeland, your extended kinsfolk, to leave everything you know. And so Abraham turned from the idolatry of the city of Ur, a city that was known for the worship of the moon god, as it was called in that town. For Abraham, there was this physical, this geographical leaving. But for those who believe in Jesus Christ, there is a spiritual leaving of the homeland of sin, a turning away from the comfortable and the familiar ways of sin in this life, a forsaking of the all-pervasive false gods of this present world. Think of those modern idols that we are tempted to serve, the God of materialism, of money, of power and success, the God of comfort and pleasure and illicit sin, the God of really living primarily for yourself, being the Lord 
and God of your own life. And instead, we're called to a trusting submission of our lives to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Similar in various ways to the very same decision Abraham faced when called by God. Coming to Christ means trusting in God's word of promise of forgiveness and new life in Christ. But that faith in Christ will and must show up in immediate obedience, just like Abraham. Not perfect obedience, but obedience nevertheless, an obedience that turns away from sin and false gods and all the lies of this present evil age. Like Abraham, Christians have renounced the empty idols of this world, yet we know that we still tend to stray and get caught up with the temptations that are all around us. We are like the disciples. We have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. We've been justified by grace through faith once for all, but we need regularly to have our feet washed as we confess our sin and repent and turn away and renew our faith in Christ. Young people, especially you who have been raised with the clear teachings of the gospel in your homes, as you move into adulthood, you will inescapably face the costs of forsaking the world and living for Christ. Maybe you don't think of those things at age five or age eight or age 10, but as you grow into adulthood, that calling to live for Christ, of believing God's word instead of believing the lies of this world, that continual choice will be put before you. The way of faith is costly. It always involves the way of the cross. It reminds me of that old hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow, the hymn says. The world behind me, the cross before me. It's speaking of that costly turning from the world and all it offers us. Think of what it cost Abraham. Most certainly, the misunderstanding and probably even the ridicule of various friends and acquaintances as he left Ur. And it cost him in terms of his economic and financial certainty as well. He didn't even know where he was going. He went out and God said he would show him the place, but he didn't know. It's a lot different. You can't go to, he couldn't go to Google Earth and see photos of what the promised land looked like. God was leading him, but it also cost the risk of his safety. It wasn't safe to travel like that in those days. And the cost of a remaining lifetime of being a stranger in a foreign land and living in tents the rest of his life. His sojourning involved testing by God. Verses 17 to 19 speak about the most famous test of Abraham when he was called to offer up his son Isaac and God stayed his hand at the last minute. God is so often typically testing us in suffering. And in suffering, we see the things in this life that we tend to hold on to too tightly. And God uses those tests and trials to wean us of the things of this world and to teach us that he himself is sufficient for us. 
Coming to Jesus Christ by faith calls us to leave our homeland of sin. But secondly, we learn that living by faith in Christ means to always be a sojourner in this life, to always live as a stranger and exile, to always be out of step with the world. In verse 9, the word sojourn that's not found in our translation is translated by the phrase to live as in a foreign land. That's what sojourning means. And at the end of verse 17, we find that these all acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, speaking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah. In fact, in Genesis 23, when you go back to read about Abraham's life, when Sarah dies at the age of 127, and Abraham is grieving the loss of his wife, and he's dwelled in the promised land for half a century at this point now, He goes to the local Hittite leaders, the people living there around him, to buy a piece of land to bury his wife. And he comes and and he begins the discussion with them by declaring, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. And he buys the cave of Machpelah to bury his wife. That burial cave was the only piece of real estate that Abraham ever owned, that he ever possessed in the promised land. The continuing paradox for Abraham was that God had promised him the land and he entered and dwelt in the land, but he never obtained possession of it. That was for a different generation, a later generation. Living by faith means living as a sojourner. And that's true for you and for me. Later on in the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, the author will make this application to us. He'll say, therefore, let us go to him, that is Christ, outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Bear the reproach he endured. And then then he says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's a reoccurring theme in the book. Bear the reproach of Christ Do you hear what the author is saying? For those united to Christ, there is always a reproach of sorts as we live in this world because of our faith in Christ. We are just fundamentally different. We enjoy the same good things of life. We enjoy a good meal. We enjoy the beauty of creation. We enjoy friendships and maybe exercise and music and other arts and all of these things. But there is always some degree of dissonance with the culture around us. In some nations, this dissonance is very severe. There is great hostility and opposition and persecution to the gospel. But even when there is not blatant opposition like that, the Christian lives as a sojourner. Scripture tells us this. It's not easy to live that way all your life in this world. He or she is a dual citizen, we might say, a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem while being a citizen on earth. One commentator makes this statement. It was probably more difficult for Abraham to live by faith in the promised land as a stranger than it was to leave his homeland initially. Isn't that true for the Christian? Often in conversion, there's, there's great joy, there's great euphoria in receiving all the blessings that are in Christ by faith. But the Christian life 
is a long obedience in the same direction. And it is certainly by faith, but God is maturing us and teaching us not to go by how we feel, but to trust his promises, to trust his word. It was a constant test of faith for Abraham to have these amazing promises from God of the land and of descendants more numerous than the stars and the grains of sand, and then not to see these fulfilled, at least not completely fulfilled. It called Abraham to a walk of faith. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, there's that word again, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And those passions of the flesh come in many forms, not just the outward scandalous sins, but all kinds of normal, everyday, acceptable wrong desires, desires that rule our lives and bring forth the fruit of sin in our lives. What does it mean to abstain from these passions? It might mean that all your friends at your school or at your job are running wholeheartedly down the pathway of worldly thinking and worldly sinning, but you know that you cannot go down that path because of Christ's lordship over your life. That's what it means to be a sojourner united to, faith, to Christ by faith. It might mean that you don't participate in the worldly gossip at the office or you don't laugh at the off-color jokes. It doesn't take long if you stand for biblical convictions for the world to begin to snicker at you and mock even if you do so with a a winsomeness and wisdom and love. You're a sojourner. You are simply different from the mindset of the world around you. The story of the conversion of Adoniram Judson is an example of the calling to be a sojourner in this world, this calling to forsake the world with all its power of sinful attraction Judson was raised in Massachusetts in the late 1700s by godly parents. His father was a congregational pastor. As a boy, Adoniram loved puzzles. He loved solving puzzles and and math problems, just what all you kids love, right? Word problems of math, just like we all loved. So it was not surprising that Adoniram finished first in his class in mathematics at Brown Universe, Brown University during his college experience. He was proud of that, but during that time, he was deeply influenced by a college friend, Jacob Ames. Jacob was a skeptic and a deist who scorned and mocked faith in Christ and belief in the Bible as God's word. And Adoniram Judson bought into his friend's unbelief and ended up telling his parents, in a sad and dramatic scene that he had abandoned his Christian faith. And of course, he broke his parents' heart in doing so. And eventually, he went off with a traveling theatrical company. But as they traveled and performed, he became disillusioned with that life. He felt pangs of guilt, for example, when the group snuck away 
from rented rooms without paying the woman who rented to them. And Judson finally separated from the group and was heading back home. When in New York State, he stopped for a night in a lodging home. That night, as he slept, his sleep was disturbed by the cries and the terrors of a man in the next room who was very ill. And the next morning, he asked the innkeeper if that man was okay, that he heard the night before. And he was shocked to the core of his being when he learned that not only had the man died, but that it was his college friend, Jacob Ames, in the next room, the one who had persuaded him to abandon Christ. That tragedy brought Judson up short when he considered the passing nature of this life compared to the gospel promises that he knew so well of forgiveness and eternal life in Christ. Many of you may know the rest of the story. Judson soon after truly and sincerely turned to Jesus Christ in faith, not merely as it had been before as a form of outward conformity, but now as genuine heart response to the mercy of God in Christ. And out of that newfound faith, and men are not unlike that of Abraham, we might say, God called Judson to a life as a missionary on the other side of the world where he spent the last 40 years of his life bringing the gospel to Burma. Living by faith in Christ means that we will always be strangers and exiles in this world, whether we live in Lancaster or we live in the other side of the world. But third and finally, living by faith means to live in expectation of the final fulfillment of all of God's promises to us. And that final fulfillment is what Scripture calls the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, or we could say the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. In verse 11, in verse 10 of our text, we ask ourselves, what enabled Abraham to live all those years as a sojourner in a foreign land? And it says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundation, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, He was enabled to live as a sojourner because he believed the promises of God, kept holding on to all that God had promised, which are ultimately fulfilled in heaven with God. He didn't see the complete fulfillment of those in this life. And verses 11 and 12 highlight that Abraham and Sarah were given the power by God's grace through faith to conceive and bear a son, even when Abraham was 99 and Sarah was 90 years old, beyond childbearing years. And so there was some fulfillment, and eventually more descendants, we know, came. And now all believers are said to be children of Abraham. But look at verse 13. These all died in faith. And it's interesting in verses 20 to 22, the emphasis is the faith of the other patriarchs. There's a brief mention of Isaac dying and Jacob, what he said and what he did when he was dying, and Joseph. Interestingly, you think of Joseph and all that Joseph's life was like, the the great testimony he was, but the author emphasizes Joseph like these others at the end of their lives. And Joseph is telling the people, the Israelites, to 
take his bones with them to the promised land when God finally brings them out. None of them saw the final fulfillment. And here's the point for us. As a Christian, if you are going to have power to continue your walk with Christ throughout your life, then you must be constantly setting your gaze upon the city of God. Not that you have to imagine the streets of gold and so forth. Yes, the Bible tells us that. Whether that's literally or figuratively fulfilled, we do not know. But setting our gaze on the city of God in the sense of reminding ourselves and believing of the final blessing of seeing Jesus Christ face to face and the great consummation of our salvation when that takes place. That is the Christian's great and glorious hope. And it's tied in, of course, to the glorious return of Jesus Christ at the end of history. It's interesting what it says in verse 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Notice the emphasis on thinking about the land that you left. You can't be looking back to what you have left. You can't be like Lot's wife looking back at Sodom. You can't be longing for all that you are missing in the sinful world. Anyway, all those things eventually turn to ashes. And it's interesting that verse 16 talks about a stronger desire, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. It's like Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal for the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself is the goal and the prize for every believer. And being with Jesus in heaven will entail the fulfillment of all of the promises in the city of God. What are you thinking about? Yes, we all have to think about many things. What are you daydreaming about? What are you longing for? Are you regularly brought back to the focus of our faith, the word of God, the promises of God, the character of our God, and all that God has given to us in Christ? Like Sarah and Abraham, you might say we are living in tents, longing for home, desiring and longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And only faith enables us to live like that right now. What are the allurements of this world that are attractive to you this week? We're thankful for the commandments and the prohibitions of God's word, and that should be enough for us to keep us faithful in obedience to God's will. But what we see in this point is that God has given us much better promises another motivation much better than anything the world offers. And our God has given us himself and he's given us the blessed indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and he's guaranteed he will keep us to the end and bring us to that city of God. When the Roman Empire was finally overrun, what happened to the Christians? Was their hope in God dashed pieces? Well, possibly for some of them, But I'm sure 
that it was a great test of their faith, just like those who are living in the Caribbean this week, whose islands were dashed and smashed by the hurricane. I'm sure that there was great suffering in the Roman Empire at that time, and many possibly even died who were believers. But for those in Christ, the state of their earthly lives was not determined solely by the things of this life. No, by faith they knew that their lives were hidden with Christ in God, and they persevered in faith, just as these Hebrew Christians were being exhorted to persevere in their faith. And so we pray that God would give us grace to live by faith and to look forward to the city of God. And may we be able to say in the words of the final verse of our last hymn, Savior, if of Zion city, I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. May that be true for each one of us. Father, we do rejoice in your faithfulness because we confess that we do not keep ourselves. We thank you for, by your grace, making us members of the heavenly city. What a great gift you have given us. Help us to live throughout our earthly days with that heavenly promise in view, trusting in Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray in his name. Amen.